0: All right, right, Second Corinthians, please, in chapter 10. All of us this morning are fighting a battle of some kind. Some of our battles are very serious. Others are silly. A mother told her son to not go swimming. However, when he Came into the house from being outside, his mother noticed that his hair and his bathing suit were all wet. Johnny, mother scolded him, I told you not to go swimming. I couldn't help it, mom, defended the little boy. The water just looked so good. <laughs> she said, Why did you take your bathing suit with you then? Well, just in case I was tempted, Mom. <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of us do. We kind of get on the way of temptation. We all fight battles, don't we? And whether we win or whether we lose is based on how we apply the Scriptures and the strategies that God gives us. That there is a much more deeper and more... Um, difficult battle that we face, and that is enacted by the sinister minister himself, the devil. It is not a battle between the nations, although those happen. It is not a battle even between culture, although certainly that's very real. But it is a battle for the minds and the souls of men and women. It is a battle between God and the satanic agenda. Today we're going to look at one of my most favorite passages concerning this topic and actually uh, maybe the number one, if not the number one, the top three passages that I use as a prayer promise when fighting the devil. And so I look forward to this passage this morning. If it looks like I have something on my nose, it's not a fly or something like that, I was Looking in the mirror this morning in the cabinet at something, and after I was done, I slammed the mirror, and uh, my big old nose got in the way, and I just took a slice right off of the front of my nose. So I don't know if it's bad eyesight or a big nose or, or just old. I don't know what it is, but uh, I thought, really, Sunday morning? But uh, there you go. All right, let's bow for a prayer. Father, thank you for this morning, and God, I thank you for this passage. And uh, I sense, Lord, Your leading. I sense your, uh, your will, and it thrills me. Lord, I just never get used to feeling You speak to me. It's the most treasured thing I have. And Lord, I pray that these precious people, Lord, will feel. Lord, You know how I have labored in prayer this week, that each of us would get this. This, Lord, is a You've given us just uh, such a powerful passage. Help us, Lord. I pray that you'll use me as your vessel. Give everybody a hearing uh, heart, open ears. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 11, 12, in this passage area here, these are very personal chapters for the great apostle Paul. He does things that uh, very few ministers like to do. I, there may be a few, but I'm not one of them. I don't really like to get real personal or open up and share things about my private life. I think most of us are that way. In these chapters, he gets very personal. In fact, so personal, at one point, he even says, frankly, I feel like a fool sharing these things. is the Holy Spirit said, Paul, I need you to be an open book here because people go through the same struggles you're going through. They need to know that you're real. They need to know that you go through these struggles. And so Paul, being the vessel of the Lord that he was, said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. And so he lays before us this uh, difficult season in his life. And uh, it really all began with a, a, a church problem, an issue in the church that he had been pastoring, and it really uh, got inside of him. And so uh, how he dealt with it, how he dealt with this satanic opposition that was happening as we find in this passage. So let's go to verse one, if you would, please. And let's all read verse one together. Uh, If you don't have a King James version in front of you, either a hard copy or electronic copy, we have it in the PowerPoint here. But let's read it out loud. All right, ready? Begin. Now I, Paul myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. Now, the uh, 1 Corinthians is an epistle. Just words means letter. An epistle is not the wife of an apostle. And um, it is a letter to the people at the city of Corinth, was was a Grecian city, it um, it was a notorious city, had its issues. It was a very sensual. It was the San Francisco or the West Hollywood of its day. But uh, the power of God just showed up there, and uh, amazingly, people got saved, and they were uh, getting in church and true salvation, not some kind of church rigmarole stuff, uh, some kind of religion. No, I mean, these folks were. They were connecting to God on a great level. It was changing their marriages and their lives and their family. It was awesome. And uh, Paul stayed there for quite a while, a year and a half. But as his ministry was that more of a church planter, he moved on. But he really maintained uh, a real connection to the church and was really a mentor to the people there as well as the pastor. While he was gone, the wolves came in. As long as the shepherd was there and kept his eye constantly, those wolves wisely stayed away. But boy, the second he left, some crazy people came in and he began to be under a relentless attack. False teachers, endeavoring to scandalize his good name. Their concept was, "Let's, let's devalue him, let's hurt people's confidence, and then we can step in and we can teach the people. Of course, they had a probably a personal agenda as well. They thought if they could teach the people, they could maybe get money from the people or whatever. And it was a, it was a very sad and challenging time in his ministry. But Paul was used to that. Frankly, he had been uh, slandered, false accusation constantly came, persecution, threats. His apostolic authority was challenged, his personal integrity... Integrity was vilified. His message was constantly being misrepresented. People would just only take half of his words or add to his words. And, uh, but because he was a steward of truth and a protector of the gospel, and because he was taking uh, ground from Satan, I mean, Satan did not like it that these people were getting saved. And boy, I tell you what, anytime a church... Uh, begins to be successful, you can guarantee the devil is not happy. He was in a spiritual war and it consumed him. I mean, it's not something you can get away from. It was 24 seven. His body as a result of that was loaded with scars. He was whipped. He was beaten with rods. He had scars all over him uh, from chains that he had wore on his ankle. He was not a If you'll ever read a a description of what they perceived to be uh, his bodily appearance, and we know that he must have not been much to look at because he quoted others who said he was nothing really to look at. He uh, was probably around five feet tall, we are told, bandy-legged, very thin, hunched over with uh, all the effects of what he'd gone through. He had knots on his face. He didn't look very good, frankly. Uh, this guy had been beaten for the gospel, and he started out so successful—very rich family in Cilicia. He had been raised a Hebrew of Hebrews, so this was a a big deal. And so, but his bodily presence—he wasn't imposing. He wasn't big and tall and handsome, and uh, not a typical leader by any means. Well, after um, that. Uh, he had to deal with some situations in the church. The church had a repentance. There was a big cleansing. Lots of people left. And there was really a revival. And uh, it, like so often happens, the devil throws a monkey wrench in the mechanism. And However, even though there had been a revival, there were still some false teachers. They had been pushed underground because of the revival. But they were just waiting for the first opportunity they could have to assert themselves. They engaged in guerrilla warfare behind the scenes. They were picking their spots. They would whisper it to people uh, on the sidelines and put their poison into people's minds. Yet in spite of all this, Paul maintained a great attitude. And so let's pick it up here in this verse number one. He said, I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now that's the background. Now, anybody else having gone through all that would have said, I am a bitter, bitter person, but not him. A good soldier for Christ must watch his heart. He said, I have no hatred in my heart. I have no bitterness in my heart. I have no desire for revenge. And let me just, um, a footnote here. Every believer, not just ministers, not just the Apostle Paul, all of us must learn to deal with with people who oppose us for the the sake of the gospel. It is part and parcel to being a Christian. We live counterculture. Everything in this world is going to be against us. When you wake up tomorrow morning, 99% of the things you hear from the news is going to be against Christianity. It's just, we are in a warfare. Now, notice what he said. He said, even though that's the case, he said, I've kept a good attitude because of Jesus, who in presence... Am base among you. Now he admitted. He said, "My style is low profile. I am not a, I'm not somebody that comes in with a big swath and, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not somebody that you would normally think would be some kind of great, dynamic leader." He said, "I'm quiet by nature. I'm sort of introverted, but I will tell you, trust me, I am a mighty spiritual warrior for Christ." don't let my parents um, think otherwise. Don't judge this book by its cover. He was one of those guys that said, I may speak softly, but trust me, I know the big stick. And the big stick I have in my hand is God's word. And I know how to use it. And so this passage begins with a battle motif. Go to verse two. Let's read that together as well. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Now, there were people in the church who just frankly had a contempt for any kind of authority. It didn't make any difference who it was, but especially in this case, it was leveled against the apostle Paul. They did everything they could to devalue his office and his person. They were jealous. They said things like, as it says here, um, that, uh, you know, um, you're not very bold with us when you're in our presence. They were basically calling him a wimp. They were saying, well, you don't look special. You don't act special. I mean, it kind of reminds me of what Miriam and especially and Aaron said about Moses when they said, you know, who made you to rule over us? We speak to God and God speaks to us just like you. And so um, they were saying you know, things about him. But notice what he said. He said, I don't want to have to be bold with you. The very first word he said that I may not be bold. Now the word bold there is the word for courage. I don't want to have to be courageous in front of you. I don't want to have to use my authority and the weapons that I have. He had a very compassionate side to him. And his compassionate side said, look, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I don't want to fight you. I don't want to have to deal with this. Can't we just have a positive ministry when I'm there? But he said, but trust me, I will bring it to you if you want if you want to mess with the gospel, if you want to mess with the truth, I will be bold for Jesus. I will be courageous for Christ. He said, it's not about me, but it's about the office. It's about the ministry and it's about souls. He said, I'm not going to back down in case you're thinking that. And then furthermore, he says in the last part of the verse, He said, um, I am present with confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against son. Now, the Greek word is different in both of those. The first one means courageous. The second one actually is a word for fearless or daring. He was saying, if you push this, if you keep, those of you that are false teachers, those of you that are behind the scenes creating such issues, he said, I promise you I will be fearless, fearless. God has given me a spiritual fearlessness, which I remind you, you would do well not to provoke me. Never provoke me about the gospel, because while I may appear to be an easygoing dude, I promise you, I am fearless for the gospel. And I love Paul's boldness here, not pride, not, in fact, if anything, he's just saying, look, I'll guarantee, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you personally and on the level and from a, uh, just a visible viewpoint, I'm certainly nothing that you would look at. But he said, I promise you spiritually, I'm a lion. <laughs> I have a lion's heart. You know, there's a popular misconception out there in this world today that love is incompatible with strictness. It seems like you either have to be strict or you have to be loving, but you can't do both together. But I love how that Christ just dispelled all of that. All you have to do is read, for example, Matthew 23, where Jesus just leveled these so-called woes against the false teachers, and he called them every name in the book, and nobody was more loving than our Savior. Recently, they did a study, and they found... uh, among researchers that uh, the combination of loving and strict is the absolute best combination for parents. They took a scenario, abuse of alcohol, and they polled 5,000 young adults between the ages of 12 and 19, and they asked them how many times they did alcohol into an abusive uh, amount. And it's uh, particularly binge drinking. And so here's what they found out. They found that teenagers were most at risk of binging on booze who had parents who didn't know where their young person was um, and uh, who, didn't, uh, who didn't really, but they may have been warm and loving, but they just really didn't know where their children were. They had a three times higher risk for binge drinking, meaning that uh, a one who just is so loving, but you know, just says do whatever you want. They have a it's just it is a train wreck uh, type of parenting. Number two, then they took parents who were kind of strict and mean, they knew where their children were, but uh, they just weren't very warm, and they found that those children. Those young adults were twice as likely to uh, do binge drinking. The young persons, the teenagers least likely to binge were parents who scored high on, they knew where their children were, they had strong rules, and they were warm in their parenting style. Here, I think Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying, look, don't confuse the fact that I'm I'm loving and I don't have this big uh, presence He said, with the fact I'm somehow weak, I promise you I am strong for God. Now verse 3, let's all read that verse 3 together. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Now the word war there is a Greek word, "stratuo," which is a word we get our word strategy from. He said, I have been given by God a powerful strategy, and I use it. Life is a war, and we are all engaged in it, and the kingdom of darkness is our opponent, and we are fighting for the proclamation of truth and the honor of Jesus Christ. We are fighting for the souls of men and women and for the virtue of our sons and daughters and husbands and wives. Paul said, if you think I'm just got an axe to grind, or if you think I'm just... Uh, some kind of theological football I'm kicking around. or No, he said, this is not a game to me. I promise you, this is a warfare. This is warfare. These battles are not fought on the the soils of foreign countries, but this battle is fought in the minds of our children, the minds of those we love, our own minds. This week, have you ever felt like you had a a, you had a challenge maybe reading your Bible? Did you feel like you had a challenge maybe praying? Did you just think that was because maybe you just weren't a, you know, a spiritual person or whatever? The fact is the devil wakes up and from the, before you even wake up, he never goes to bed. And he is constantly trying to plant things into your mind, bring things into your life and my life to try to weaken our service for God. Why didn't I witness this week? Why didn't I pray like I ought to? Why do I steal God's money or whatever the case is? It is because Satan is constantly, through his demons and through this world system, he is out to get us. If you struggled, if you see your loved ones struggling, you see your children struggling about things of the Lord. Why? That's because Satan is after them. So I remind all of us here this morning, the things we're talking about this morning, these are not just um, uh, fictitious. This is real stuff. We are in a warfare. Now, we may assume the warfare is on the outside, but it's oftentimes on the inside. It's in our minds, and it's in the mind of wives and husbands. This past week, uh, our nation has been traumatized by the thought of this precious uh, little girls uh, in Colorado there that were murdered by their own father and his wife and pregnant with a third child. And uh, seemingly someone who's got it all together, someone who they look like a nice couple with all of their media presence, just look like a happy family. And yet there is a battle going on for the heart of that father. There's a battle going on. I mean, we may look one way, but I'll tell you the devil is after us. He's after our children. Now in this passage... Paul starts with this church issue. And he says, look, I may I may not look like a something, but I promise you I know how to fight. I may be small but I'm scrappy. I'll tell you one thing, I know I don't uh, I don't uh, it's not a game to me. I will take you out. <laughs> like one person I said if you hear that I'm in a Fight with a bear, you better pray for the bear, and uh, and that's exactly what Paul was saying. He said, "I don't look like much, but I promise you, I will clean your clock. So you better, you better back off. And if you're a false teacher, I'm giving you fair warning. I'm coming to Corinth, and you better, you better get out of there because when I come, I'm taking no prisoners and I'm taking down names. And uh, Paul just let it now. Then it seems like very clearly. He segues into something uh, more, something bigger. I mean, specifically, he has an issue with this church. But then, as we read verses four, five, and six, we sense this is not just about the church. This is not just about him and Corinth. This is strategies for us. And that's exactly what he said here in verse number three. He said, God has given me a strategy. That's the exact Greek word. Now, what are what was Paul's war strategy? Let me give them to you. Three things. Powerful. Number one, we must tear down strongholds with spiritual weapons. We must tear them down. All right, let's read verse four together. Ready to begin. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God the pulling down of strongholds." Carnal, it doesn't mean unspiritual, it means human, it means fleshly. Fleshly weapons cannot deal with unfleshly issues. Principalities are not afraid of our human weapons. Rulers of darkness are not afraid of our human weapons. Human weapons cannot liberate souls from the kingdom of darkness. You cannot trick anybody to being saved. You cannot cannot use a human weapon. It will not sanctify your son. It will not sanctify your daughter. You can put rules in place. You can have all the parenting techniques we want to, and we should. Nothing wrong with it. But the fact is, it is a spiritual warfare. It is something we must tear down. God says very clearly here, we must tear down strongholds with weapons that God gives us. Now, what are weapons of the flesh? Drugs, therapy, human reason, organization, eloquence, personality, cleverness, religious methods, showmanship, philosophical arguments, artificial atmospheres, whatever. I mean, it could be any of those things and so much more, but they are weapons that are designed to somehow make us sanctified. And human weapons, however good they might be, do not affect the devil. He does not care about them. They do not scare him. Now, people use these weapons to sell cars. I mean, we bought a new car recently, about a year ago, and uh, we went through the new car uh, drill. We found some uh, secrets uh, from the previous time, so we. uh, headed them off with the past. But man, it is is an absolute uh, psychological design they have from beginning to end how they work it. You can sometimes sell people cars. You can convince people to go to college. You can tell people to vote for certain candidates, and they use all kinds of artificial stimuli. But it means nothing to the devil. To the devil, those kind of weapons are like when our grandkids and my grandsons, we give them Nerf guns, you know, for Christmas. And first time that we give them a Nerf gun, I get uh, shot 20 times, you know, on Christmas Eve. But, um, but honestly, that is exactly what our weapons are to the devil. They are just like little Nerf darts. They mean nothing. There may be superficial victories we gain here and there, and we may say things like, oh, they've gone to therapy or they took drugs and they're doing better now. I promise you, it's superficial. Because drugs don't fix people. Therapy doesn't fix people. It doesn't work that way. It's only superficial. Should we do them? Maybe we should. I'm not saying we especially shouldn't. But the point is, if we're going to fix somebody, we've got to bring out the big guns. And that's what Paul said here. He said, I've got big guns. I have a Bible bazooka. I don't use Nerf darts, promise you. You guys fiddle around with your little concepts, but I promise you, I don't have gimmicks. I don't mess with gimmicks, because we're pulling down strongholds. Now, when he said that, it was like he was saying, folks, look out the window. Look at the look at the Acropolis. Look at the Parthenon. Look at the, the castle over here. Uh, look at the places. And he said, look at these castles. Look at them. He said, you're not going to pull that down by a pea shooter you're not going to pull that down. Those are strong. These are walls that have been built. took a long time. We're talking walls that are thick and high, and they have big parapets up there and big towers, and those will not come down easily. The word stronghold means a fortress. It's interesting how that in the New Testament, however, that word also is translated as prison. So the word stronghold in this passage not only is Translated as a fortress, but it's also translated as a prison. And it's actually very accurate because those who retreat into their fortress, those who retreat into their refuge, those who go to their happy place, their little castles, will soon find that they become their prisons. Some will say things like, uh, well, you know, um, that person needs professional help. I agree we probably differ on what professional help is. They do need professional help. And I am not against those who counsel. I'm not against those who help others with whatever medication they might need. I'm not especially against that. The point being is that they're not the professional. They may be trained, but whatever they do are carnal weapons. And they cannot fix a spiritual problem. Only God can do that. Only a powerful, spiritual weapon can do that, and it pulls it down. God says you must pull down those strongholds with spiritual weapons. And so the first thing he points out is, let's just set some ground rules here. The ground rules are, whenever you come up against a stronghold in your life, your wife's life, your husband's life, your children's life, your friend's life, someone that you love, whenever you come up against a stronghold, these These fortresses that people go to, their little happy place that actually ends up imprisoning them, you must must not imagine that you're going to trick them out of it. You're not going to put enough rules to get them out of it. You're not going to do enough psychological warfare to get them out of it. There must be spiritual weapons. Buzzards are disgusting creatures. They are God's creatures, and they are part of his ecology, but the fact is they are disgusting. They feast on dead uh, animals. I mean, it is just terrible. Interesting thing about a buzzard I read this week, however, and that is this. If, if you would take one of them and put them in a pen, six foot by six foot, really quite enough room for them to walk and have quite, plenty of room, and leave the top open, take a buzzard, put them in a six by six pen leave the top open, you would think that if they got scared or if they got startled, they would easily be able just to fly out of there. But because that they need room to run and take off, they actually will not leave. They will just sit there. They'll go to their little place and feast on their slimy, dead junk that they love so much. And yet it becomes a prison to them. They could easily escape, but they are imprisoned because they have not pulled down. And that's what we need to do. We need to pull down every stronghold with a spiritual weapon. Notice what really works. Now, Paul said the second strategy is this. Not only pull down strongholds, but put your will and thoughts into the captivity to Christ. Into captivity to Christ. Look at, now, let's read verse 5. Ready? Begin. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Strongholds. What is it? What is a stronghold? Well, Paul describes what a stronghold here is. Here's what a stronghold is. It's an imagination. Now, to us, the word imagination means, you know, oh, something we you know, some fanciful thing, but is the Greek word lagismos? And actually, if you were to look at it, if you were to read it, you would say, oh, I can see what that word means because it's the, the spelling would mean logical. Logic. It is logical things, not specially true, just logical, human logic. It means thoughts, ideas, opinions, reasonings, philosophies, theories, ideologies, religions, anything that makes human logic... I've talked with people before, many thousands of people over the years, they'll say this and that about whatever, you know, about their thoughts about heaven or hell or eternity or whatever, and it makes perfect sense to them. You're just listening to them thinking, this person has no idea what they're talking about. But to them, it makes human, it's an imagination. It's a human logic. God says it's a fort. It's a stronghold. These imaginations are forts with which men and women hide their ideological castles and they attempt to fortify themselves against God. And the devil do everything he can to keep us in these strongholds, these imaginations. That's why this morning while I'm preaching some of you are being attacked. You were thinking while I was preaching, oh I'd be, you know, I wonder what the weather's going to be this week or I wonder how dinner is doing or I wonder uh, if the you know, 49ers are winning, or I wonder. And we get these things in our mind, and for three or four or five minutes during the sermon, you're gone. And it was just the sentence that you needed, just the phrase, just the thing that would have changed you. But the devil knows, and he knows what you need, and so the devil's after you. And that's exactly what happens. These imaginations, they happen. They happen all day long, and they're constantly after us. They're high places. They're fortified towers. Now, the Bible reminds us that in Romans chapter 1, everybody comes into the world knowing that there's a God. Everybody comes into the world knowing that there's a God. He wrote the Bible on every heart, it says. So in order for a person not to believe God, they have to become apostatized. They have to, they have to purposely deny God. They have, to, they have to come up with things that tell them there's no God because everybody starts knowing God. That's how God can say he's with, people are without excuse if they go to hell. It's because they denied God. That's why in Romans chapter 1 says, I can send people to hell justly because everybody knows God from the beginning. It's very clear that there's a God. We all turn our back on God, all of us, all our sinners. We all turn our back on God at one time. And when is that? It is when we begin to build strongholds, brick by brick. Sometimes our parents help with those, sad, but they do. Sometimes the education society gives us bricks for this stronghold. Sometimes it's the media, whatever the case is. Sometimes it's false religion. But they build these castles and people retreat to them. All anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible ideologies are satanically inspired. Uh, They are bricks that have been given to us to build our fortresses. Now, Paul knew what he was talking about because he lived his entire life in a castle called apostate religion. He was taught that if you are good enough, you get to go to heaven. If you obey enough, you get to go to heaven. And he was good with that. In his mind, I'm well-to-do. God only blesses good people with money. In his mind, that's not true, but that's what he thought. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was raised at the feet of Camelio. He was a leader. In his mind, his fortress was secure. And then one day, he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he'd been fighting against it internally for a long time. And thank God, his castle was crushed under the truth of Jesus Christ. And all of us have different castles. Sometimes it's religious, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnessism, and um, Roman Catholicism, and Seventh-day Adventist, and Hinduism, and Buddhism, and dozens of these liberal Christianity games that people are playing today. But they are all simply ideological fortresses, imaginations that give people comfort. And increasingly, non-religious castles, naturalism. And today, naturalism controls our governments, controls our environment, controls uh, our state schools, and controls our university and our media. And it is all pride, and that's what it says here. It is a high place. It's all based on pride. It's an ideological high castle that people retreat to. But the truth is, it's just a love of sin, and these ideological uh, ideas are entrenched in our minds. Now, if you have a calendar tomorrow, you might look at the, what tomorrow is, and tomorrow is a um, it is a muslim holiday known as eid aladha and uh, tomorrow there will be hundreds of thousands of muslims around the world that'll be celebrating the end of this uh, time called ramadan in this festival of eid al-Adha, in places like Saudi Arabia, they come and they will march in front of three big pillars representing Satan. And people will take rocks and throw them. (laughs) Crazy and sad, but over the last 20 years in Saudi Arabia alone, 3,000 people have died at these festivals, either hit by rocks or stampeded or whatever. But the fact is, how silly, and that's just like the devil, to give people these ideas that somehow they can fight these uh, pressures by throwing a rock at a pillar? Really? What are you thinking? Folks, I'm telling you something. We need weapons better than that. And that's what God says. It says that the weapons we have can bring into captivity every thought, every thought. Now, that phrase there is fascinating. You can go in there and get your concordance out and you'll read that that says taking a prisoner with a spear. And so here's what it really means. It means when you find a thought, when you find a concept, when you find an ideology, ideology, when you find something that is contrary to the Word, take the sword of the Word and stick it in the backside of that thought and march it out of your mind. Just march it out. Take a spear and say, out. You are out of here. I'm not going to listen to your damning lies, and that was Paul's experience. He felt like he had it all, but he had it all together until he said God came into his life and saved him, and notice what it says, we must bring every captivity, we must bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That's just a synonym for the word salvation. When I get saved, I am saved. Obeying Christ. I am, and obedience is the mark of salvation for, and sanctification. That's why Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and whoever hears my word and does it is my disciple. Now, this passage for me is a tremendous prayer promise. As I was studying, I was a challenging week really studying on this passage, and uh, There's so much I wanted to say, but I just knew we had to hone it down here. But as I was reading it, there was a certain point, as as I was studying it, there was a certain point where the Holy Spirit just began to well up in me because I remember many a time when I have in my privacy, in a place where I could be, I have gone into warfare with this verse a son or a daughter, a loved one who was captured in their mind with a false idea, with a, with a satanic ideology, saved people. But I mean, the devil was after them. And in the privacy between me and God, I said, oh God, oh God, I pray that God, you will bring every thought of theirs into the captivity Christ, I know that it's possible because God says it's possible here, and I believe this is what God called violent praying. I'm always fascinated by that passage in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12. It always fascinates me. Jesus is speaking, and he said, "From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force." Now, in context, Jesus was speaking about the zeal of the people who were following John the Baptist. They were just an amazing group of followers. They served with a holy violence. They wrestled, they fought in agony for God. They they fought against opposition from without and within, but they would not be denied. Kind of like Jacob when he wrestled with the angel. They took it by force violent praying. If I may, I will share with you something I don't want to share. But I I asked the Holy Spirit if He wanted me to say it. I only heard my wife of 34 years, Lynette, I only heard her curse one time. And as far as I know, it's was actually the only right time to curse. (laughs) And I'll explain that. We were dealing with some situation in one of the children's lives. I really don't even remember what or what was going on, frankly. We were praying, and I remember my wife saying something that shocked me. She said, Damn you, devil. Damn you, devil. I was taken back by the violence of her prayer. As far as I know, that's the only time she ever said that, and as far as I know, it's the only right time you can curse because she was doing it right. She was damning the satanic, demonic influence that was affecting the life of that child. And I know God heard her, and I thank God for what she showed me that day of a person who had violent praying, someone who said, no, (laughs) I am not surrendering my mind. I'm not surrendering the, the mind of my child to the devil. God, I pray, oh God, pull down every stronghold, and I pray, oh God, that you would put a spear to the backside of every evil thought and drive it out of that mind. Paul said, I'm telling you, when I'm coming, you may think you're dealing with somebody who's just a pushover. I don't look like much. I'm certainly nothing to brag on, and I'll, I'll grant you that. He said, I don't, I don't have much of a presence personally, but trust me. If you want to fight, I'll bring you a fight and you won't win because I'm bringing, because I have, no, I have no animosity, I have no anger, I have no hatred, I have no bitterness. But when it comes to the cause of Christ, I always am victorious. We always conquer through Christ. The third thing that Paul said now, it's not enough to pull down the strongholds and it's not enough to put your will into thoughts of captivity of Christ. You must punish all that is not of Christ in your life, verse 6, and having a readiness to revenge. (laughs) This is when revenge is good. (laughs) Revenge is never good unless it's against the devil. And having a readiness. It's actually a military term. It means to punish, to punish evildoers. And having a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. What is he saying? He's saying, now, if you have pulled down strongholds, if you have used the truth of God's word in your own mind and the mind of those you love, if you have pulled down strongholds, don't stop because you might leave a little root. You've got to eradicate it. Don't just don't just pull it out. You've got to eradicate the last vestige of evil and wrong. He said, punish it. <laughs> punish that thing. Don't just beat it. Punish it. Don't just win. Punish it. He said, I want you to uh, I want you to be revengeful on sin. It's not talking about being mean or harsh on people. It's talking about. Well, Jesus said it this way. He said, if your eye offends you, cut it out. Pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. That's basically what he's saying here. He said, you can't, you can't treat sin with lightness. And I hear people say, I'm trying to do this, or I'm trying to do that. No, you're not. Because that kind of, that's, just, that's leaving the, the problem there. That's not punishing sin. God said, punish it be compassionate, but be courageous. And no matter how old we are, no matter how mature we may be in the Lord, Paul said, there are always places in our life that when you apply the searchlight of Scripture, you will see something that is not good. And when you do, punish it. I don't care how old you are, punish it. There's a little game that kids play. It's called whack-a-mole those little moles come up there and they whack it. you know. That's what we need to do with sin. Every time we see it, man, whack that thing. Whack them all. Whack it with the truth of God's Word. You'd say, well, I'm not getting this, Pastor. How do you punish sin? Well, it says right here, when your obedience is fulfilled. How do you punish sin? Every time I obey Scripture, I punish sin. I punish the devil. I'm Sorry, devil. You don't have me. I'm going to obey. I'm going to obey God's Word. And when we blow it, we get up the next morning, we say, God, forgive me. Wash it from me. Lord, I'm going to attack it again. We never give up. We never quit. We just keep trusting and obey. Because if we don't, every compromise strengthens the devil but thank god every step of obedience breaks the back of satan's hold. And that's what he's saying here. He is saying we pull down those strongholds. We put ourselves into the obedience of Christ. We humble ourselves and we say whatever your will is, that's what I'll do. And then we don't stop there. We punish. We 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 eradicate. We just say, "Get out of here." I'll do everything I can. I just and every time I obey, if it's in the scripture, I'll obey it. I don't ask questions. I obey. About 70 years ago or so, there was a, a conference in Potsdam, Germany. The rulers of the West were there, United States of America, Great Britain, the former Soviet Union. They all wrote out an ultimatum and sent it to Japan. Japan. They said to the Japanese, you must surrender totally, unconditionally. If you do not surrender, devastation will come. It will be prompt. It will be thorough. We will destroy your armies. We will destroy your navies. We will destroy your air force. We will destroy your factories and your cities. We will not spare. You must surrender. The Japanese said, we will not surrender. We will fight on. The Americans dropped their secret weapon, the atom bomb, and Japan surrendered totally and unconditionally. Now, friend, this morning, let me tell you what happened. At Calvary, God dropped an A-bomb on Satan. As every drop of blood was leaving his body, and as he hung on that cross. Jesus said, now is the prince of the world cast out, Satan's kingdoms ruined, and Satan's back has been broken, and Satan's system has collapsed. And when Jesus died, he paid the debt of our sin, and through death, he destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil. The Bible reminds us that we have been given every weapon we need to fight the devil, and it happened at Calvary. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.